Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. I heard a great joke the other day. What do you call a guy that hangs out with a band? I don't know what. A drummer. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Andrew Dost from the band Fun that'll help break the ice. Their new album just came out. Later, we'll speak with award-winning author Jeff Dyer about, among other things, his new book, Zona. Which is a book about a movie about a journey to a room. That's right. We've got an interview about a book about a movie about a journey into a room. To be precise. Yes. Also coming up, Top Chef Judge Gail Simmons, legendary ad man George Lois, Brian Selznick, author of Hugo, and music from the band Islands. But first, reality. Ah, but you're listening to a podcast, and so no news, only show. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Welcome to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. Later, we'll hear from Brian Selznick, author of the book The Invention of Hugo Cabret. Martin Scorsese turned it into the Oscar-nominated movie Hugo. He's here with a list of illustrated books for adults. And don't worry, they are totally safe for work. Totally. Yeah. It's on the radio. (laughs) Also, coming up, our two cents on the birth of the five and dime. Ah, it's well done. Thanks. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Rihanna and Chris Brown are collaborating. Last night's make-or-break Republican debate, the 20th and maybe the last for these candidates. A new branch of the Smithsonian will highlight the African-American experience. Now for something you haven't heard, we turn to Rehan Harmansi. She is the culture editor for The Bay Citizen. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Um, well, really, one word, you guys, nomophobia. Whoa. Okay. Got it? (laughs) Can we talk about that on the radio? Is that a new uh, new album? Uh, It's a sort of new phobia that was coined in 2008. Nomophobia is the fear of being without one's cell phone. Oh. Apparently, nomophobia is on the rise. Wow. What kind of numbers are we talking? So 61% of study participants said that they were actively nomophobic. There was a study of a thousand people in the UK. What is, What is the symptoms of nomophobia? Is it just like running around screaming? Yeah, I think it's like that. I think there's crying. Do you just run into the nearest abandoned payphone booth? <laughs> just like something, anything. Oh yeah, where do you get your fix? Yeah, yeah. But another stat that came out of this is that um, on average, people check their cell phone 34 times a day. So... <sighs> If you're experiencing nomophobia, it typically is not for very long. I think we're using this word nomophobia, but basically, if you don't have your cell phone, right. that feeling is called living, right? Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. like connect it's with people around you. You kind of just have to be, be with your thoughts, kind of contemplate life. Yeah. England. Talking to your children who are in the car. <laughs> oh, There's no. all these awful things that you could avoid when you had your phone with you. Yeah, no, no, that's nomophobia. <laughs> I do, I'll admit, I do freak out a little bit when I don't have my phone on me. I don't freak out. I kind of like not having my phone. I kind of feel like when I don't have my phone, I'm like, Phew. no one can get to me. What's, what See, can I do? I feel like people that say that are lying. <laughs> I just feel my Facebook wall is flooded with people that are like, forgot my phone at the gym. It feels so good. You're lying. It does not feel good. <laughs> but I think there's the other nomophobia. I may have dropped my phone, which has all of my personal information well, there's that. on it. There's that. Right. Well, there's that right. nomophobia that Apple employs when it's a new phone, like a new prototype. <laughs> that they've lost. And they're like, no jobophobia. <laughs> yeah. They're like, <laughs> That's called unemployment. Anyway. Rayhan Armanzi, thanks for the small talk. Thank you, guys. I won't call you, Brendan. And now, time for cocktails. 
Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our palate-pleasing history lesson with booze. First, the history part. 133 years ago this week, one of the most important stores ever opened. It wasn't the Apple Store. Hmm. Our friend Michelle Phillippe's here with the tale. In 1878, a clearance sale changed the retail business. That year, in upstate New York, a guy named Frank Winfield Woolworth was a stock boy in a general store. The owner figured he'd get rid of some extra merchandise by pricing it at a measly five cents a pop. It all sold in a flash, and Woolworth got an idea, a store where everything was five cents a pop. A few months later, Woolworth debuted his great five-cent store. It wasn't so great. The place was lit with one lamp. The counters were made of packing crates, and there wasn't much to actually buy, because it turned out the range of stuff you could sell for a nickel was kind of limited. The store barely lasted a few weeks. But that summer, Woolworth tried again in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. This time, he sold items for five cents or 10. Now there was plenty of inventory, and people snapped it up. On opening day, he sold 30% of everything in the place. The Five and Dime store was born. Soon, Woolworths were everywhere, pioneering more than just low prices. Like, instead of asking a guy behind a counter to fetch your merchandise from a storeroom, it all sat out on shelves, and you helped yourself. By 1913, business was so good, Woolworth had a skyscraper built in Manhattan, the world's tallest. He paid for it in cash. Eventually, alas, bigger stores like Target offered more stuff at prices even the original five and dime couldn't beat. The last U.S. Woolworths closed in 1997. But the company didn't dissolve just changed its name and put all its nickels and dimes into a retail shoe chain it had bought along the way. Woolworths is now Foot Locker. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for a cocktail to go along with it. On the line, I have Eric Adolfson. He is the proprietor of The Woolly, which is a bar in the Woolworth building in downtown Manhattan. Eric, tell me a little bit about your bar. In some ways, we are a kind of bridge between the Woolworth Five and Dime store and the Woolworth building itself. The Woolworth building was built and, and itself is kind of a, a fantasy space. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, built, it's modeled after a cathedral oh, on wow. the ground floor, which is landmarked has a cathedral structure, but all of the kind of traditional iconography or images you would see in a cathedral, gargoyles, mosaic tiles, all of them have been replaced with things that relate to Frank Woolworth himself and the people around him. Huh. So there's, there's gargoyles that represent him counting his money. No, uh, him counting his money? That seems yeah, kind of... counting his money. There's a huge <laughs> sense of humor, and I think there's this kind of fantastical element where he created this kind of vision of what his, what his empire was about. Well, let me hear about this cocktail that you've made based on this, the, the history of Woolworths. So we do, you know, have a sense of humor in our cocktails in general, and one of our more kind of go-to cocktails is a variation on a dark and stormy, which we call the dark and woolly. All right, the dark and woolly sounds interesting. Tell me, tell me what's in the drink. For, for this 
conversation, I thought I would maybe make even a more of a direct nod to kind of the old five and dime stores, which themselves used to have cafes. Okay. So um, we take brown plastic cups, okay. uh, traditionally found from diners. Yeah. Put a shot of Crucian black strap rum. Okay. Then you add whatever cola you want. There's Coca-Cola, there's Pepsi-Cola, Royal okay. Crown. Okay, cool. I've heard of Coca-Cola. Okay. <laughs> I'm putting a, probably about eight ounces. And then you can add a dollop of any kind of ice cream. I'm using uh, malted ice cream that comes from Laboratorio del Gelato. Sounds like an ice cream float with a kick. Uh, so that's the dark and woolly. And woolly is what fans of Woolworths used to call it, right? They used to call it Woolies. I think woolly has a has a much more of a presence in the UK than it does in New York. The word. Yeah. We did play off of the woolly and don't kind of allude to the building as much. Our actual kind of imagery or icon is a woolly mammoth. I see. So a nod to uh, another extinct giant. Yes. So, Rico, fittingly enough, yeah. when Woolworth was taken out of the Dow Industrial Average in 1997, right. it was replaced by Walmart. Ah, perfect. Interesting. So, I guess future generations will be sipping cocktails in former Walmarts. <laughs> That's right. It, yeah. An intimate bar that seats 5,000. <laughs> With a greeter. With a greeter. You can order your martinis in bulk. Oh, no. <laughs> Folks, uh, what is your dystopian vision of the future? <laughs> Tell us about it at our website, Dinner Party Download. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today, in honor of the Oscars, we are rebroadcasting a list we taped last year with Brian Selznick. He's a Caldecott Award-winning author of illustrated books for kids. But for us, he listed some essential illustrated books for grown-ups. Hi there. My name is Brian Selznick. I'm the author and illustrator of The Invention of Hugo Cabret, which is being made into a movie by Martin Scorsese, which opens uh, November 23rd. And my new book is called Wonderstruck, which uh, was just published. Uh, I have some ideas for some illustrated books that I think all adults should have, and I think you'd be proud to have them on your bookshelf. Scott McCloud's book, Understanding Comics, I think is a, a handbook for anyone who's interested in how pictures can tell a story. Scott McCloud is a really amazing comic book artist himself, and what he's done in the form of a comic book is look at the entire history of visual narrative work, starting with cave paintings, and then following that right up through like churches and the Renaissance told stories visually, uh, and how even before that, when people were illiterate, you could walk into a church, look up on the walls, and see the stories of the Bible, and you would understand these narratives even if you could not read. If you have any interest in what it means to tell a story visually, this is the first textbook that you should go to. The second book is Sean Tan's The Arrival. Sean Tan is an Australian artist, and he just won an Oscar for a short uh, animated movie that he made of one of his stories. This is a book that has no words at all, and it's probably closest to a graphic novel or like a comic book, but done in these uh, really, really beautiful, detailed sepia paintings. And it's a very unsettling, strange story about uh, an immigrant. 
it feels very realistic because it's a family and they've got their ratty clothes and they've got their china on the table and it feels very real. But then you begin to notice that there are strange shadows going across the walls. There are animals that you don't recognize. And what Shantan is actually doing is making the reader feel what it feels like to be the immigrant, experiencing a new land where everything is strange. And because there's no language, it transcends language. So it's something that can be shared, whether someone is an immigrant, whether someone's a native speaker, whatever, you will share this same exact experience with other people who are reading the book. It's unlike anything I've ever seen before, and you have to have it. Number three is Maurice Sendak's Where the Wild Things Are, the sort of the, the perfect and most beautiful picture book ever made. It's a book that everybody knows, but a lot of people have not seen in a really long time. That's why I think it's really important to go back and actually look at what Maurice Sendak was doing with the pictures and the text and the page turns. The turning of the page is really this dramatic moment. You can do things that mimic the ways movies are made. You can have cuts, you can have edits, you can imitate a panning shot, you can do a zoom in, a nice close-up. That's something I was exploring with the invention of Hugo Cabret, trying to tell a story that feels like a movie. You know, it's about the early history of cinema, so I wanted it to feel like a movie. Sendak is the, the master of that. Guest list from Brian Selznick, author of the illustrated book The Invention of Hugo Cabaret, Martin Scorsese's film adaptation. Hugo is up for 11 Academy Awards this week. That is a lot of Oscars. A plethora. If he wins, he'll have like a, a soccer team of little statuettes. <laughs> really? Is that how many? It's 11. 11 on a team. Too what? short of a baker's dozen. It's a golden team. Coming up, advertising legend George Lois gives us etiquette tips and tells us about a few of his pals. Thanks a lot to Jackie Gleason, Bob Hope, Salvador Dali, Whitey Ford, Barry Ann Moore, Andy Warhol, right. Sonny List, and Orson right, George, enough. That and many more names when The Dinner Party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, Top Chef Judge Gail Simmons talks about her culinary education at the hands of a very particular boss. For example, you could never use the term frankly. Or, I'm assuming the term shut up was not okay either. Shut up, you <laughs> psycho. But first, it's time for our etiquette segment. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this time around is advertising legend George Lois. For 10 years from the 60s into the 70s, he designed revolutionary covers for Esquire magazine with images like Muhammad Ali as St. Sebastian shot full of arrows. But he's here because of his forthcoming 10th book, is it? It's a it's a ten dollar book, believe it or not, <laughs> and and your tenth book. Yeah, you know, instead of buying a Burger King, you know, you can learn something for the price of ten Burger King yeah. hamburgers. You get a whole book. Yeah. It's called yeah. Damn Good Advice, and it is subtitled for people with talent. Well, what's interesting when I said for people with talent is. Um, uh, most people think they have talent, mm. so it's a winner. So I'm going to sell 50 million books because <laughs> everyone will buy it. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Is it advice for living? Advice for business? It's, a, it's a, an advice for creative living and how to be a, a good person. To tell you the truth, it's everything I know about living and about creativity and about living a, a, an important life. And when you're done writing about all that stuff, then what do you do next? You're like, ah, oh, I figured it out, and uh, now I'm going to go play golf yeah, forever. And, well, I'm 80. 
and I still play full court basketball with young studs. Really? Oh my God. I swear to God. <laughs> that and I want some advice on how to pull that off. Exactly. I have played more basketball than any person in the history of the world because <laughs> I started when I was no eight, nine years old. Over the years, I had four scopes on my right knee, three on my left, two severed Achilles tendons on my right leg, four broken noses, uh, blah, 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 blah. I don't know if you're playing right, man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, I'm not playing with a full deck, that's for sure. I'm not taking your damn good basketball advice, (laughs) that's for sure. But we'll still accept your advice for our audience, though, George. Absolutely. Should we get to some questions? Yeah, they've sent in some questions for you. You got it. Our first question comes from Maria in Santa Monica, and she says... My good-looking friends have an indisputably ugly baby. I'm sure he'll grow out of it and be super cute someday, but for now, what do I do when they beam at him and look expectantly at me? I'm a really bad liar. Wow. <laughs> I hopefully, hopefully she lied about her name. Well, <laughs> almost 60 years ago, I got myself a reputation as the enfant terrible of the, of, of the advertising world. Mm, yeah. So etiquette has never been a word in my vocabulary. Uh, Perfect. (laughs) But to produce work I could be proud of, I've had to shove, cajole, persuade, wheedle, and occasionally lie. Oh, I think I see where this is going. Maria, you certainly don't have to tell the parents their baby boy is ugly. (laughs) Just say, I think you got a winner. (laughs) How's that for advice? He could grow up and be another Yogi Berra. Sure, yeah. Or Jimmy... Durante. I was just going to say. Or even Quasimodo in a new rendition of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> yeah, you have no idea. Yeah, where. if I could edit, I would just say, um, I think you have a winner, full stop. <laughs> Period. Before I get into the Quasimodo. <laughs> all right. Um, all right, here's our second question. This is right up your alley. This uh, gentleman whose name is Nate from Chicago, Illinois, says, I make TV ads for a living, but still fast forward through most of them when watching at home. Am I contributing to my own demise or just behaving like a normal consumer? Well, um, Nate, I, I, like you, hardly give the vast majority of TV spots a glance because, unfortunately, most of them suck. <laughs> most of them look like they've been produced by that hack, talentless Sterling Cooper ad agency on that mindless Mad Men show. <laughs> oh, Wait, here we go. We, can we take a moment into the, to go into this? You're not a big fan of that show, right? No way. But why is that? I mean, why? it seems like that's, because, that's your era. It, it's because everybody, everybody looks at the Mad Men show when they, and they say, wow, that's so glamorous. Those guys were terrific. Well, no, the people that they depict are mindless, talentless, you know, guys who spend their lives trying to... The secretaries and uh, <laughs> the real madmen of, of that period were talented, passionate people who really brought you know creativity and uh, literally helped change the world. And you're saying that that's that's changed now? Yeah, I, oh yeah. So we're telling Nate that it's okay not to watch TV, but you <laughs> yeah, need to oh, tap yeah, into your you own know, creativity. Is that what? Yeah, I'm... I mean, you know, hey, look at your wife; she's pretty good looking. Check her out. <laughs> Don't check out TV ads or your secretary. Do check out your wife. Yeah, you know, figure I have something to do with her. Okay, so we have another question. This comes from Carrie in La Crosse, Wisconsin. She asks, how do I deal with coworkers eye-rolling and making brown-nosing comments about me? I always end up volunteering for extra work because I love the work and I love being busy. So what should what should she do when people like say, oh, Carrie's a brown noser when she's just trying to work hard? Well, in, in, in the book, uh, Damn mm-hmm. Good Advice, that we're talking about, in it I wrote, Working hard and doing great work is as imperative as breathing. So, Carrie, <laughs> feel only pity for those co-workers. They don't know that they're leading a meaningless life. Wow. wow. Yeah, I, th- I think people who criticize you for working hard 
are hacks and bums. Most people uh, are trying to hold on to their job rather than doing a good job, and that's that's deadly. You're right. Mm. Brendan, so Carrie, quit. I've got to go and do something. Rico's going to leave now because he wasn't doing his best. Um, so, Carrie, don't give a damn about the people not giving a damn. That's your damn good advice. Uh, here's our final question, George. Uh, we ask this of all of our etiquette guests. What is the most memorable get-together that you've ever been to? Details, please. Yeah, just listen for a second to my abbreviated list of unrepentant name-dropping of celebrities I've worked <laughs> and dined with. <laughs> Frank Sinatra, Jackie Gleason, Bob Hope, Salvador Dali, Whitey Ford, Marianne Moore, Andy Warhol, Sonny Liston, Orson Welles, Betty Grable, Henry Fonda, Kim Novak, Joe Namath, Jane Russell, Gina Lodrigida, Rudolf Nureyev, Robert F. Kennedy, and hundreds more. Who are those Jeez, guys? Yeah. Could you please go <laughs> what, by one what, by one and describe who those people are? I mean, I'm not kidding. I got another 200 of those. But, but my most memorable get-together was a lunch in 1967 with Muhammad Ali. Uh, a few yeah. weeks after my Esquire cover, you mentioned it before. And at that time, Muhammad Ali is like an incredibly controversial figure for refusing to fight in Vietnam, right? Oh, yeah. You got it. You know, he was very controversial. Mm. So anyway, so he and I walked into the pool room at the Four Seasons restaurant, and when they see Ali, they went, whoa. Yeah. And after the tumult died down, in strode our two lunch guests, and they were the iconic Joe Lewis, wow. <laughs> and walking alongside him, track star Jesse Owens. What? <laughs> the, the, From uh, the you, Berlin Olympics. These yeah. are like two of the biggest sports heroes of World War II. You got it. The room exploded with an ovation unlike any I have ever witnessed, all standing and chanting, Ali, Ali. Wow. And this is in the middle of the Four Seasons, you know, this posh <laughs> restaurant, you know what I mean? Now, you got to understand, Joe Lewis and Jesse Owens actively displaying their support for Ali oh, yeah. brought tears to most of the people in that room. What did you guys have for lunch? Yeah. Really, is what, I'm well, what do you order at that point? <laughs> well, you know what? It was hard to swallow after that. Well, it's pretty amazing just hearing you telling us about uh, yeah, it. Yeah, and sharing it with us. George, thank you so much for coming by and giving damn good advice to our audience. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks a lot, guys. George Lewis, his book, Damned Good Advice, hits stores next month. And if you'd like your etiquette question answered on the radio, yeah. call the Dinner Party Hotline, a.k.a. the phone in my cubicle, 213-621-3554. And now, time to eavesdrop. This week, Top Chef Judge Gail Simmons released her memoir called Talking With My Mouthful, My Life as a Professional Eater. Today, we overhear her share some dinner party-worthy anecdotes about an early gig with the food critic for Vogue magazine. So I was working at a, as a line cook at a restaurant called Vong in New York, and I was given the book The Man Who Ate Everything by Jeffrey Steingarten. I didn't know who Jeffrey Steingarten was until this point. I had never read Vogue magazine. So I read this book, and when I read it, I remember thinking, this is it. This is my job. This is what I've always waited for and haven't known how to articulate. I want this job. Um, how do I get it? Who is this madman, and how do I work for him? So I went to my culinary school and to the guy there who is the culinary career services director. And I said, have you ever heard of this guy? And my career services director, Steve, looked at me and laughed and said, wow, that's amazing. I saw Jeffrey last week and I happen to know he's looking for a new assistant. And he set up an interview with me and Jeffrey for the following week. And I called Jeffrey right before the interview to confirm the details. 
and Jeffrey sort of cryptically said, since you're coming over, don't they have some sort of fried duck roll at Vong, this restaurant you cook at? And I took that as a takeout order. I proceeded to have a three-hour interview with Jeffrey that was the most stressful interview of my life. Jeffrey read my resume and grilled me on every aspect of it. Jeffrey made me translate from French and Spanish, off-the-cuff books that he would just rip off the shelves. He was drinking a glass of wine, asked me to taste it blind and give him my tasting notes. He was making these ribs, and he asked me to taste them and describe what was right or wrong about them. He talked to me about restaurants and where I like to eat in the city, and I made the mistake of mentioning a restaurant I like to eat at, and his response was, wow, you obviously don't read Vogue magazine. If you did, you would know that I hate that restaurant. After about three hours, he let me loose, and I left his apartment and walked home. And I remember thinking to myself, I know I didn't get the job because it was miserable. I failed completely at every test he gave me. But at least I got three hours with this incredible food writer. And sure enough, I got a call from him just a few days later offering me the job. And it was exactly as I imagined it to be. I spent half my time recipe testing, doing research, running around the city for all of his amazing culinary adventures. Um, we did an article about sea urchin, and he would go diving for sea urchin himself, and then we would cook these incredible sea urchin recipes, which is kind of amazing if you know what Jeffrey looks like to think of him in a wetsuit diving for sea urchin. Don't think about it. Just stop. Stop thinking about it. He wasn't an easy man to work for. You know, in a way, he believed in negative reinforcement. Instead of telling you all the things you do right so that you want to do them again, he would make sure to just tell you the things that you did wrong. For example, you could never use the term frankly. He claims that the term is to be frank. He also hated when you would respond to him if he would ask you to do something by saying no problem. Of course it was no problem. That's your job, and I'm asking you to do something. To this day, there are things that I'm scared to ever do and say because Jeffrey told me not to. One of the pieces of working for Jeffrey that I didn't anticipate that was this bonus was that I was, you know, non-officially inducted into the ranks of his fellow assistants. So he picks a very specific type of young woman to work for him. That's not in a sexist way at all. These women are all really strong, wonderful people who went on to also become very important, integral to my life and my career. Um, but emotionally, they provided such an amazing support because otherwise you're just kind of working alone all day with Jeffrey. And we call ourselves Jeffrey's Angels. Gail Simmons, her new memoir, Talking With My Mouthful, came out this week. You're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media, to be frank. And now, time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we're schooled by an expert on some dinner party-worthy topic. And this week, our topic is pretty darn topical, how to win an election. Our guest is Harvard Ph.D. Philip Freeman, who just published a book, How to Win an Election. It is a translation of a little election strategy handbook that dates back to Rome circa 64 BC. And hello, Philip. Hi. So the original text of this, How to Win an Election, was a letter written by Quintus Tullius Cicero, 
who sent it to his brother who was running for Roman office. Is that correct? Right. His brother Marcus was running for consul, which was the highest office uh, in the Roman Republic. This is before the Roman Empire, so there was no emperor yet. Right. This is a, a, yeah, a few decades before that. And you're, So your thesis is that the advice in this book, 2,000 years old, is applicable to elections today. Oh, yes. It's really, uh, it's timeless. Uh, I mean, it's just, it was applicable in 64 BC, and it's applicable now uh, in the Republican primaries. Power knows no age, I guess. Absolutely. So let's get into it. What is one of the main things we can do, according to Cicero, to win an election? Well, there are a whole bunch of gems uh, of advice in this book, but I think probably the the first one to remember uh, for any aspiring candidate is to promise everything to everybody (laughs) uh, and to, to tailor your message to the audience of the day. So if you're talking to conservatives, promise that you respect traditional values. If you're talking to progressives, say you want change. Uh, It really depends on your audience. I'm assuming that at the time, that kind of advice was maybe not prevalent. Like, I guess people actually would tell the truth and say that you can't do everything for everybody. No, I wouldn't assume that at all. Uh, The Roman political system was just as uh, conniving and and crooked uh, as any. Uh, And so uh, this was, uh, it was really about Marcus, uh, Marcus Cicero, who is running for office. Right, because Marcus was, he was a little bit like Mitt Romney. He was a, a, a bit stiff uh, and really didn't know how to uh, relate to people especially well. So so Quintus uh, gave him this advice about techniques that you need to win an election. So Quintus didn't invent this advice even before 64 BC politicians were promising everybody everything. Oh, probably since the beginning of civilization. Yeah, but that said, I understand you've got an excerpt from the book here that sounds like it makes a decent moral case, actually, as to why a candidate should make crazy promises? Sure. This is Cicero quoting the Roman leader Cotta, I guess. Yes. Remember Cotta, that master of campaigning who said that he would promise everything to anyone unless some clear obligation prevented him. He seldom refused anyone, for he said that often a person he had made a promise to would end up not needing him or that he himself would have more time available than he thought he would to help. After all, if a politician made only promises that he was sure he could keep, he wouldn't have many friends. This is Now, here's the thing. Normally, we think about this idea. If you're promising everything to everyone, you obviously can't keep your promises. But that's actually a pretty decent argument for doing that. Basically, not promising does you harm. And hey, you may be able to fulfill more promises than you think once you're in office. Right. You might be able to. Which is kind of a really positive way of doing it. It's kind of like, think positive. Oh, it is. I mean, and not everything in this book is negative. There are certain ideals and such that uh, that Quintus does put forward. Like, like for instance? Well, uh, that you should maintain your honor uh, as much as possible, which sounds uh, totally contradictory uh, given this book. But that you should, uh, if, if somebody asked you to do something that is absolutely despicable, you should tell them no. All right, so we've got trick number one, which is tell everybody everything. Uh, Number two? Uh, Number two is uh, know the weaknesses of your uh, opponents and exploit them. And this means, uh, well, opposition research. It's a very old uh, sort of concept. Uh, You look into each of your opponents, you find out what weaknesses they have, and you make sure you emphasize the weaknesses. And Marcus actually had the benefit of running against two candidates with a lot of weaknesses, right? Right. And Antonius and Catiline, who came from noble families, which was important in ancient Rome, but they were uh, pretty despicable characters. Uh, Antonius uh, was well known for going down to the slave market uh, and hiring a a girl for 
to be a sex slave. Uh, Catiline was uh, well known as a, a murderer, basically. So uh, Cicero did have that advantage uh, in the election that year. Do we know that he did, for instance, bring up his one opponent's concubines? Oh, absolutely. Uh, this is he, he may not have done it directly on his big public speeches, but he had more of a whispering campaign. Just make sure you have people hanging out in the street corners and, and saying, by the way, do you remember what Catiline did? And how about that Antonius? Just in case you thought negative ads were some new invention. Uh, all right. So we've got negative. We've got tell everybody everything, then quietly destroy the reputation of your enemies. Right. And the, number three? I think the last one would be give people hope. Because uh, even in the most crooked of elections, you have voters who want to believe in a candidate and, and want to believe that things really can get better. So you give them hope, uh, you inspire them, and then you will, of course, inevitably uh, let them down when you uh, get office. But by then, it really won't matter because you would have already won. Uh, and at the risk of ending on that cynical note, I'm afraid we are out of time Philip Freeman, thanks so much for schooling us on how to win an election. My pleasure. People, you should still vote. And Brendan, Marcus Cicero did indeed become consul. Wow, so the book worked. Yes. Nice. But alas, later he backed the losing side in the Roman Civil War, so he and his brother were eventually murdered. Oh, right. Too bad. So they should have read a book, How to Pick the Right Side in the Civil War. Yeah. It's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) The lesson is you can never have too many instruction books. Nope. Uh, Folks, we're going to take a little break. Coming up, I Drink Honeybees. We hear a new song from the band Islands, and writer Jeff Dyer tells us what inspired his new book. It was a form of bunking off, really. All that and more when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we hear a new track from the band Islands. But first, it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. Yes, and Brendan, if I were to mention the drink mead, you would immediately think of... Vikings? Yes. (laughs) Also, Renaissance fairs. Right. Unkempt beards. Uh, Exactly. (laughs) Ancient times. But, and speaking of beards, actually... Mead has suddenly become trendy. People are brewing mead at home. You can Uh, find mead more and more in stores. And next weekend is the big Mazer Cup mead competition. That's what it's called. It's called the Mazer Cup. Yes. (laughs) It sounds like a treasure from Dungeons and Dragons. (laughs) So it's appropriate. Can't make that stuff up. Anyway, this week I read about a mead project begun a few months back by William Bostwick. Uh He wrote the book Beer Craft, and he has made a kind of mead that I think even most mead makers would find unusual. All right. So we got him to a studio to talk about it, but first I asked him what exactly mead is. Well, mead is uh, fermented honey. If you think of wine as fermented grapes and beer as fermented grain, mead is the same thing, just with honey. Why do I always feel that mead is lumped in with beer? You know, I, it seems like the recent resurgence of mead comes from this kind of craft brewing craze. Yeah, I mean, you know, people are interested in, uh, I guess you could say, historical alcohol. And beer has this really kind of ancient tradition. And, you know, when you start making your own beer and kind of digging back through the records, you are going to bump up against mead. 
Hey, that's what happened to me. Well, that's a good question. How old is Mead? I mean, I, I do recall it being mentioned in Beowulf, which is pretty old. Yeah, it's old. I mean, scientists dug up an urn of some sort in China that's about 9,000 years old uh, with wow. some residue of mead in there, but it's probably much older than that. Well, this brings us to the reason we're here. You <laughs> recently wrote about an experiment you did making a, a certain kind of mead in a very old-fashioned way. Can you describe this? Yeah. So I'm a beekeeper. I've made mead before, but I wanted to do something a little different. And so I made something that is called whole hive mead. Different is one way to describe this. Different is, yeah, yeah. This is real kind of primal stuff. So the idea is you don't just boil and ferment the honey. You boil and ferment the entire hive. So bees, (laughs) wax, pollen. And the thing that really gets people is bee venom. Yeah. I mean, I actually, that bugs me less because at least bee venom is a liquid. Right. Liqui- liquefying bee bodies is something that's... Well, they, uh, you know, we filter it, uh, kind of. <laughs> well, now, why? Why? <laughs> that's <laughs> why, my question. Why not? Well, but I mean, is it is this kind of the oldest thing you could get? I mean, did people really make this at some point? Yeah, people really made it. I mean, if you can imagine 8,000 years ago, you come across a beehive, you don't really have the technology to separate all the good stuff, the honey, from mm-hmm. all the pollen and the, and the bees and everything. <laughs> There's an old uh, cave painting, I think it's in Spain, of honey hunters and they just have a long stick, and they're just knocking the hive out of the tree into a pot. That's how we see the first meads being made. So that's why I did this, um, to kind of get a taste for the first booze that anyone had access to. All right, very very quickly, what is the process of this? Do you just drop an entire beehive into boiling water? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's it's really as simple as that. My friend uh, Dan and I, who I keep bees with, uh, we heated up a big pot of water on a gas grill out back by the hive, took the frames of honeycomb out of the hive boxes and kind of scraped them off into the uh, boiling water. Uh-huh. And then yeah. added some uh, champagne yeast and let it ferment. The bees must have gone insane. Uh, yeah, yeah, there are bees everywhere. And the idea is that you want to squash the bees uh, to oh. extract all the venom. It's, it's, it's brutal. Crushing them uh, with a wooden spoon oh. like, against the side of the... God. <laughs> It's like boiling a lobster is hard enough. Yeah, yeah, having, exactly. If you had to squash the lobster, <laughs> right? Would be boiling ten thousand lobsters, little langostinos, I guess that would be hard. Right. Just you know, yeah. morally speaking, do you have? I mean, like, isn't there a shortage of bees out there? Is is yeah? This... That's why I'm a little hesitant to talk to fellow beekeepers about it. Colony collapse disorder, as as people are calling it, is really decimating the the bee population in the country. But you know, our hive was our queen was infertile. Um, it had right. swarmed a lot during the season. It, we knew it wasn't going to last the winter. And oh, so we figured, you know, we might as well use it. put these bees to good use. Yeah, uh-huh. we might as well use it. They died an honorable death. Noble. All right. Well, let's. I, we have some of this stuff here. You've thoughtfully put it in what looks like a laboratory plastic bottle to make it look yeah. very lab-like, which is, I guess, apropos because there's poison in it. Right. So you're not allergic to bees, are you? To my knowledge, I am not. I've I've been stung twice and I did not, well, you know, uh, we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> That's true. So here we go. I'm unscrewing this thing, which simply says mead. It's it's cloudy, 
but it does not have, you know, bodies or anything floating in it, which is honestly what I thought might be the case. If this was served to you in a in a wine glass, you know, you'd have a, a much different reaction. Yeah, I'd be okay with it. All right, I'm going to take a, a little sip and then see if my throat closes up just in case. Hold on. Actually, it's pretty good. It's good, right? Yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> oh, man, this honestly just came to me. I swear I did not come into this interview preparing to say this, but it does have a little sting to it. <laughs> At the end, after it goes down, it has a little bit of... There is. Is that is that really like the, I guess, acid or whatever of the, of the venom going on, or is it just that it's I, very sweet? You know, I don't know. Uh, it's so rare. I found one other person in the country who's made mead this way, so I don't really know what is doing what. I imagine the venom's got to do something, and it is pretty sweet still. It's really actually quite good, and it's not, I thought it might be like maybe thicker or syrupier, but it's actually, you know, it's kind of a wine texture. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not dying, <laughs> and it's tasty. Success. There's a, and, you know, you say there's only one other person doing this, so the bees aren't shaking in their boots right now. They have nothing to fear. Yeah, no, not not yet. So bee slaughter. Yeah. Bee massacres. Great dinner party topic. I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. But, you know, there's been a lot of talk about American restaurants serving insect dishes like fried crickets. Uh-huh. You know? If you think about it, this is just a different way to eat insects. You know, I'm not going to think about that, All actually. Right. But That's your choice. <laughs> people, you're free to talk about it on our Facebook page. Uh, it's facebook.com slash dinner party download. Our guest of honor this week is writer Jeff Dyer. He's written four novels and several award-winning works of nonfiction. He has a new book out called Zona, which is ostensibly about Stalker, a 1979 sci-fi film made by the great auteur Andre Tarkovsky. But ultimately, the book is a meditation on human psychology and art. Jeff, you started this project because you love the movie Stalker, but after writing about it for a couple years, I'm guessing you never want to see it again, right? Well, let's put it like this. I'm doing a few things where I'm introducing the film. And I think I could be forgiven while the film is in progress for going out and having some dinner <laughs> instead of in, instead of seeing it. Can you just tell us how this project came to be? Well, this mad book, which is basically what I do is I kind of summarize, if not frame by frame, the, then certainly shot by shot, this film Stalker. And the reason I did that, it was a form of bunking off, really, because I was contracted. I'd agreed to write a book about tennis, which, when I signed the contract, um, I thought I really wanted to do, because I was crazy about tennis. And then when it came to it, um, in that perverse way of things, I just found I didn't want to. Uh, and then, just as a way of bunking off, really, um, I started just summarising Stalker. And it was funny, it was just something that, uh, right from the start, I hit upon a a sort of tone that I liked. And then eventually I got to the point where I realised this is turning into a book. Uh, there was then the slightly tricky moment <laughs> when uh, I had to have this conversation with my publisher. But they were pretty accommodating. <laughs> well, I mean, you had just received a few awards for your other work, so maybe you had a little capital that you could use to negotiate. Yeah, that's right. But I fear that any goodwill or capital I've had in reserve, I've pretty thoroughly used up uh, with this latest stunt. Jeff, we're going to need a book on Kate Middleton next. Yeah. We, need, we need sales. As a writer, you're known for playing with genre. For example, your first book uh, about D.H. Lawrence wasn't a book about D.H. Lawrence. It was a book about writing a book on D.H. Lawrence and instead focused on you know, your relationships and where you traveled. 
similarly, this book, you know, is about the movie. You tell the story of the movie, but you also use the movie as a springboard for you to talk about life and and other things. If we go right back to my book about jazz, which I wrote in the early nineties, I mean, I refer to that in the preface as a book of imaginative criticism. And yeah, so right from the start, I'd, I've liked the idea of this kind of work which bridges the gap between the creative and the critical, between being fiction and, and commentary. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still doing it. Another notable thing about this work is your ample use of quotations. For example, in one three-page passage in this book, you reference the photographer Jonas Bendixson, uh, the Slovenian philosopher Slavo Žižek, <laughs> Kafka... I mean, is this a map of how you think? Do you move through the world associating, you know, what you see with great thinkers? Uh, oh, you're being so nice. Uh, it could just be construed as a form of higher name-dropping, I guess. <laughs> well, yes, names do drop. But, I mean, the question remains, is that how you proceed through the world, linking your observations with things you've read before? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, things remind me of other things, I guess. So I've tended to often work in that kind of associative way. But I guess it's one of the ways in which, I mean, right from the from the beginning, it's, you know, essayists have, have done that. And, I mean, in a way, you know, we're, all, we're always drawn to the latest books. And, you know, I think there are some horrible statistics whereby, you know, something like 90% of a book's sales will be, you know, within the first however many months of its publication. Mm. But the thing is, actually, at some level, all books are out there. They're all contemporary. So I, I quite like the way that something from, you know, from a different period of time entirely can sit absolutely next to, can be completely adjacent to, to, to something else. So, I mean, it's just a question of sort of tapping into that, really. So the movie Stalker follows three men on a journey into a place called The Zone, where there is supposedly a room that will grant them their greatest wish. You have a lot of fun speculating about people's mm. deepest desires and wishes in this book. I was wondering if you could talk a little more about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, so this is the heart of The Zone that they all go traipsing through. It's alleged there's a place called the room where your deepest wish will come true. Um, uh, but it's important to emphasize that it's your deepest wish. It's not what you think you might most want. It's what you actually want. In other words, what it reveals is your deepest being, your, your essence. And of course, that can be, uh, that can be a rather shocking, <laughs> disillusioning experience. What I conclude is that... Um, that it's not this kind of external thing like winning the lottery. You know, mm. if I won the lottery or whatever, then I would do this, this and this. Um, actually, a more um, reliable indication of your deepest wish is probably the way that you're just routinely uh, leading your life. So although I have a bit of fun, I end up concluding that my deepest wish is to be sitting at my desk writing this book. Well, my deepest desire may be asking these two questions I'm about to ask you. <laughs> um, we ask them of every guest on our show. Sure. The first one is, what question are you tired of being asked? So I'm one of these people that in interviews I always play by the rules, I promise you. But in this case, I'm afraid I'm going to have to reject the question because the truth is that it's it's so amazing to me that anybody could want to hear my opinions on anything. It still seems so implausible to me that uh, <laughs> there's no question that I'm, I'm fed up of answering. <laughs> wow, that's very uh, magnanimous of you. Um, <laughs> it's true. Okay, one more thing we ask of our guests is... Tell us something we don't know, either about you or the world. 
Yeah, well, OK, I'm going to put this out as something which you may or may not know. So I'm, I'm very tall. I, I'm six foot, six foot two and a half. Mm. And I guess the question is this, really. I mean, is it obvious in almost every line I've written that this, this is the prose of a tall person? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, can you deduce uh, mm. an author's height from his or her writing style? I mean, I feel actually that that it's so obvious that uh, that I'm a writer of tall prose. <laughs> but, um, you know... Uh, tall tales, uh, maybe, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm 6'3", not to be taller than you. Mm. But uh, <laughs> I've often said that tall people never realize they're tall. It's, it's people who are short are always conscious about height. Oh, that's... Yeah, that's... Do you know, the other day I met somebody who was really tall, about 6'7", and I was spending all my time sort of gazing up at him <laughs> like a puppy. <laughs> And uh, I really didn't like that at all. And uh, yeah, I realized, God, that's how uh, that's the that's how how most people spend their time l- looking up to to me. Yeah. Do you look up to Tarkovsky? Well, <clears throat> it's one of the things I talk about in the book, actually. And in one of my many asides, I talk about the way that I have no capacity for reverence, really. Mm. That I really admire lots of you know the work of lots, but I don't. I'm not a great reverer of people. And I don't think revering is a good basis on which to relate to, to people, actually. So, of course, I think he's one of the greatest filmmakers ever, a great, great artist. But, I don't know, look up to him? Well, he, he's dead, really. So it's, um, you know, I don't have any relation to him, as it were. It's just, it's just to the works, which I don't look up to. I look at them. Well, I'll follow your lead. Um, I don't revere you, <laughs> but I do like your writing, and I appreciate you coming by. Well, thank you. So, Rico, when I read that bit about how your deepest wish is probably what you're already doing, yeah, I was post-breakfast, prone, listening to the kinks, uh, yeah. reading, and I thought to myself, hey, man, there might be something to this. <laughs> huh. It was bliss. See, when I first heard about it, it was from you uh-huh. while I was sitting in my cubicle in the office working on my computer at 10 p.m. during a caffeine crash. Yeah. All right. So you see it a little differently. You could say that. <laughs> That's not your deepest wish? Not weirdly, no. <laughs> but you're always doing it. And that's the dinner party for this week. Next week, the band Dr. Dog stops by and shares their dinner party soundtrack. We originally told you that was slated for this week, yeah. but you know, things change. And yet, our gratitude to the following people remains constant. Thanks to Jackson Musker, the assistant producer of The Dinner Party. Thanks also to Bill Lance, Chris Holacek, Peter Clowney, Ellen Gettler, Craig Curtis, and Judy McAlpin. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Canadian indie pop band Islands has a new album out. It's called A Sleep and a Forgetting. Here's a new track from it. It's called Hallways. Bon Appetit.
I'm Brendan Francis Newman, and this is why I like wine. Wine grapes don't attack you. Just stay still, and we'll be fine. <laughs> 